This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. <clears throat> okay, good evening, everyone. Shalom Aleichem, Bruchem Aboem. I'm honored to have this uh, venue and opportunity to share some words with you before Rosh Hashanah, Habalena Lataiva. I do have to say, I made a valiant attempt to come to Cleveland. You know, if you were asked, how long does it take to come to get to Cleveland? The flight is like an hour and change. No, it takes seven hours just to get to the airport and back home without actually even going to Ohio. So we were on the runway today for three hours, and at many different intervals they told us that takeoff was imminent, it's imminent, it's imminent, and I messaged the Harris's, okay, we're taking off now, we're taking off now, but it was a false start. Supposedly there was some type of weather issue, and I'll tell you the truth, I had this trip planned out. I got myself a brand new Samsonite carry-on because I knew I wanted to get off the plane and get straight to uh, the shear. I didn't want to bring any suitcases with me, so I had this brand new carry-on. And actually I'll tell you a story about that. Um, This is a good one. So I'm, uh, I'm going through security, just happened to me today. I have three items with me. I'm coming to Cleveland, three items. I have my hat box, okay? I need my hat box. I have a knapsack. In my knapsack, I have my svara and my notes, um, some important documents, fine. And then I have my brand new Samsonite carry-on. It it meets the standards. It fits on the plane. In my uh, Samsonite, I have one change of clothing. I'm only spending the night in Cleveland, and my talisant fell in. I make it through security. You know, in New York, it's 90 degrees today. It was an extremely hot day. I was a little dehydrated. I go to the concession before my gate, and I'm going to buy, I bought a, a bottle of water. I sit down. I'm holding my hat box. I'm, I have my knapsack. I said, didn't I have another item? Where is my carry-on? I said, I can't believe it. What did I do with my carry-on? I totally forgot about my carry-on. It didn't register because it's the first time I'm traveling with it. So I forgot. I went back to the store where I bought the drink. Did you see my suitcase? No. I said, oh my goodness. I must have left it by security. I ran back to security. My talus and fill-in. What am I going to do without my talus and fill-in? I ran back to security. And there was my carry-on. Hundreds of people had gone through in the interim. Nobody had touched my carry-on. I took my carry-on and uh, I offered a tefillah of thanks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And then it dawned on me, this is a very important lesson. And the lesson is, as long as you're still in the airport, there's a chance you could find your luggage. But if I would have gotten on the plane the likelihood of me seeing that piece of luggage was very small. And it's the same thing in this world. So long as we're still here in this world, yesh l'sakein. We could change, we could correct, we could go back, we could do tshuva. As long as you're in the airport, there's still hope. As long as we're alive, there's still hope. Thank you very much for this opportunity this evening. This time of the year, perhaps more than any other time of the year, is a time of memories. We're going to mention Zechroi Nois on Rosh Hashanah. 
We're going to say Yizkar on Yom Kippur. We're going to say Zachreinu L'chaim. And this evening, we've gathered tonight to honor the memory of our dear friend, Mr. Gene Mesh, Yitzchak Ben Yehoshua. And we wish on this occasion, and uh, I'm very grateful to the Harris family, and they put in tremendous work in trying to organize this evening. And I am sure that all of their efforts and all of their wishes and the, their desire to show honor to their father is very dear in heaven. And Be'ezus Hashem is bringing a tremendous alias neshama to Yitzchak ben Yehoshua. He should be a Melitz Yosher for all of his descendants. And I remember him very fondly when I had the opportunity last time in Cleveland how his face was beaming when his children were recognized by the Learning Center in Cleveland. And on this occasion we wish Tehei Nishmasai Tzura B'Tzor HaChayim Began Eden Tehei Menuchasai He should be a Melis Yosha for his whole family Abi Yaskoel Tzedek. For me personally, if I may, in the Yomim Noram season, it's a time where the floodgates of memory open and I can't help but think of the recent passing of my grandfather's in Tavshin Pe'alef, my father's father, Harav Mordechai Leib Gladstein, passed away in his 106th year. He was a Holocaust survivor. He was a Talmud of Ramanachem Zemba. He knew the Gera Rebbe. He saw Dr. Mengele. He was literally pushed into the crematoria to be yanked at in the last second. He survived 70 years in the Rabbanus. In America, he was a rav not too far from your community. He was a rabbi in Pittsburgh. We could say about him, Tzadik Yisoyed Oilam. And then 127 days later, on Chav Zayinov, my beloved grandfather, Rab Shimon Yehoshua Hirschvang, who came from a different world. He grew up in the Bronx in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, in poverty, at the time, there were 600,000 Jews in the Bronx, and in the Bronx, only 600 of those boys went to yeshiva. He had overcome many challenges to remain in Erlich Hayid, but he went on, he was one of the founders of one of the prominent shuls in Flatbush, Rav Hillel David Shul. He lost a hearing in one of his ears, and because of that, he didn't have a steady balance, but even in his old age, he would trudge from one shul to another in Flatbush, collecting tzedakah for Aniye Eretz Yisrael. Anyone who's ever heard me speak knows how often I spoke about my grandfathers and how dear they were to me. And I'll tell you something very personal. When my grandparents were alive, it gave me a sense of security. They were our foundation, they were our bedrock. And the truth is, it made me feel a little bit like a kid. You know, when you have grandparents, you have parents, Baruch Hashem, and with the loss of grandparents, that your security is shattered. You're a step closer to the finish line. And the haunting words of the Yushalmi became all the more meaningful. The Yushalmi tells us in Ma'id Katan Perakimah Halachazayin, the Yushalmi compares a family to a pile of stones. The pile seems very steady, very stable, but that is when all the stones are there. But as soon as one stone is moved, the whole pile becomes unsteady and uneasy. That's how we feel. And thinking about all of this, and thinking about what the loss of my grand 
father's means to me, the following Gemara in Masechta Tainus came to mind. The Gemara in Tainus Dav Chav Gimel tells us the story of Choyne HaMagel. Choyne HaMagel was once walking on the road and he sees a guy planting a carob tree. Buxer. Now why anybody would want to eat buxer, to me that's one of the great mysteries of life. That's like eating the table. But that's a discussion for another time. And Choyne says to the guy, you know, you're planting a tree you mind telling me how long does it take for the tree to produce fruits? So the guy responds, takes 70 years. Chani says, 70 years? You think you're going to be around in 70 years that you're planting a, a carob tree? And the man responded, That man, meaning me, I found the world with a carob tree. The same way my parents and grandparents planted the carob tree for me, I will likewise do that for my descendants. And that's a feeling that I have as well. Whatever humble and meager hatzlacha that we have, whatever madregos that we're able to accomplish, it's only because we saw the greatness of our ancestors. Like Rebbe would say, Rebbe said, The only advantage that I have, Rebbe says, Rebbe was one of the greatest men who ever lived. Rebbe redacted the Mishnah. Rebbe says, you want to know what the source of my greatness is? I saw Rebbe Meir from behind. I mean, if whatever I have, I feel, it's because I saw the Amuna, the Tefillah, the Midas. I mean, my, my father's father, he knew his grandfather. His grandfather knew the Malbim. So I could look at my grandfather, and he took me back 160 years. It's like I saw the back of the earlier generations. That's the impact that grandparents could have. And the question is, what are we able to do? Are we prepared to have the same impact on our children and our grandchildren? You know, one of my favorite all-time stories, and uh, I say it all the time, I call it a Rabbi Berylwine classic. He tells over that when he was 11 years old, it was 1946, and his father said, uh, Bero, Bero Wine was a Ben Yachid, he was an only child. And his father says, come on, we're going to the airport, we're going to Chicago Midway Airport. So uh, he says, well, you know, Dad, what's in the airport? He says, a great rabbi is coming to the airport. Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog, the chief rabbi of Palestine after World War II, he's coming to the airport, all the distinguished rabbanim, all the yeshiva bachrim in Chicago, they're all coming out to greet him. Now, Rav Herzog was a majestic personality. He wore a shiny top hat. He had a cane. He carried a Tanakh in his hand. And he had a very aristocratic demeanor. And all the Rabbanim and all the yeshiva students go out to the airport to greet him. Right? In those days, in the 40s, when you had a flight, it actually took off and landed at its intended destination. Airplanes used to work 70 years ago. And he arrives in Chicago and he comes to the Masifta and the room is filled with all the Balabatim of the area, all the yeshiva students. And Rav Herzog gave a 45-minute pilpul shir in Yiddish. He spoke with an Irish brogue. He was a rabbi in Dublin. And he said as follows. 
He said, I just returned from a private audience with Pope Pius XII. And by the way, I happen to know the story personally because my grandfather met Rav Herzog in the DP camps. And Rav Herzog told my grandfather the story. Rav Herzog says to the boys, Kinderlach, I just met with the Pope. And I had with me the names of 10,000 boys and girls that their parents placed them in Christian institutions and monasteries because they didn't think they would ever see their children again. They didn't think they would survive. And this was the only way to preserve the lives of their children. And the Herzog comes to the Pope and he says, Look, these are the names of our children. Right now we're alive. We want our children back. You're kidnapping our children. We only gave them to you because we didn't think we would survive. But we're alive. Give us our children. And the Pope flatly refused. The Pope said, you can't even have one child. The rule is, once a child is baptized, he can never be returned to another religion. Every one of these children had the holy water sprinkled on them. We're not giving them back. And the door was slammed on Rav Herzog's face. He said, I pled with the Pope, but to no avail. Rav Herzog was so overcome with emotion, he put his head down on the lectern, and he wept, and he wept bitterly, says Rabbi Wine, I was never so frightened in my entire life. Everyone was silent. After a few moments, the rabbi defiantly lifted up his head. His face was beat red like a lion. And he said, Young men, There's nothing I could do for these 10,000 boys and girls. But I ask of you, you're in yeshiva. What are you going to do for the children of the Jewish people? What are you going to do for the future of the Jewish people? And afterward, Rabbi Wein said, we all filed by to receive a bracha. And he looked each and every one of us in the eye and he says, did you hear what I said? Are you going to remember what I said? What are you going to do for the future of the Jewish people? And truthfully, the more I tell over the story, the more moving it is. Because Rabbi Wein writes that sometimes in life, he was discouraged, he was disheartened, he wanted to call it quits, but he hears the roaring cry of Rav Herzog, reverberating in his ears. What will you do for the future of the Jewish people? And it's quite amazing, because Rabbi Wein is now in his advanced years. He has very difficult time seeing. And over the last short amount of time, he's published a number of works. And you could just hear how this story that he witnessed as a child, how deeply it affected him. And this, friends, in a way is the most important question we need to ask ourselves. What are we going to do for the future of the Jewish people? And for many of us, the most important contribution that we will make in our lifetime is the influence we're going to have on our children and our grandchildren. Let's just get a little bit of a perspective how powerful that influence is, how profound the influence is. I want to share with you the comments of the Svarno. The Svarno writes, we all know the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, 
The Torah says, "Bechol beisi neman," who he was the most faithful servant of Hashem. V'loy kam navi bi Yisrael k'Moshe. There was never a prophet like Moshe. He took us out of Mitzrayim. He went up to Har Sinai. He gave us the Torah. He fed us the man. V'hoish Moshe anav ma'ayd. He was the most humble man who ever lived. Says Rabbeinu Yoyna, just like Moshe excelled in humility, he likewise excelled in every imaginable character trait. The Medrash says, Moshe shakal keneged shishim riboy shal Yisrael. Moshe, you put him on one side of the scale, he was equal to all 600,000 Jews. Friends, if we were to pinpoint, so what produced Moshe? What was it? What was the source of his greatness? By the way, here's another question to think about. Moshe's brother and sister, Aaron, Miriam, they're not too shabby. I mean, that's some all-star cast family. Moshe, the greatest man who ever lived. Aroin HaKoyhein, the high priest. Miriam Hanaviah, she sang the Shira. That's some family. How did the parents do it? The Svarno reveals an amazing chidosh. Says the Svarno, Avalevi Sheherech Yamim Alkulam. Levi outlived all the Shvatim. Levi lived the longest. He lived to 137 years. Yosef only lived 110 years. Says the Svarno, Gideles b'nei banav. So Levi outlived the other Shvatim, so he was able to raise grandchildren. Lahavin ulahayrais. And then Levi had Kahas, and Kahas lived a long time. And then Amram, in a way, Levi lived long. Amram lived long. Says the Svarno, Be'oifen she'yatsu mehem Moshe Aaronu Miriam. Says the Svarno, you know what we learned from here? You know what the source of Moshe's greatness was? All of his humility, all of his prophecy, all of his other unparalleled character traits were because he enjoyed, he had the good fortune of being connected to the earlier generations. Why? Because his ancestors lived long. He was able to learn from a Levi, a Kahas, and an Amram. And therefore, it's not a coincidence And the same family. There's Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. They were the fortunate beneficiaries of being able to see grandparents and great-grandparents. In other words, where does Moshe come from? We don't believe. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes... Parents to raise a child. It takes grandparents to raise a child. Sometimes it even takes great-grandparents. That's where Moshe Rabbeinu came from. So you say, okay, great. What does that have to do with us? Maybe if you have a grandfather like a Levi or like an Amram, then you can have the merit to have a grandson, a grandchild, like a Kahas and like a Moshe. But is this phenomenon still relevant? Comes the Sfarno and Parshas Mishpatim. The Sfarno on the Pasuk. Loisiya Meshakelav Akarab Artsecha Es Mispar Yomecha Amale. Says the Sfarno. The Bracha, the Torah vouchsafe is here, is the blessing of long life. Says the Sfarno. What's so good about living long? You know, many people think, nah. Maybe uh, long life is not such a blessing. So the Svarno explains, you know what the blessing of long life is? 
כמוי שסיפר שקרה בעניין לוי כהס ואמרם. The blessing of long life is the ability and the opportunity to see grandchildren and great-grandchildren and to influence them. So if you are fortunate, fortunate enough to come into a world that has a carob tree planted in it, if you're fortunate enough to learn from your parents and grandparents and maybe further, then you need to make sure that before you leave this world, you provide future generations with that same blessing and the influence of what a Jew is supposed to look like. And for those of you who are already at the stage of being grandparents, maybe you thought, okay, now it's time to slow down. I'm going to take it easy. We're going to retire. We're going to go down south. And we're going to relax, maybe play some golf. No, friends. When you get to that stage, you're just getting going. That's your most important job in life. That's what you lived for. People think, I live to work then I work to retire. No, just the opposite. You, li- you work to be able to retire, to be able to do the job, which is the most important job in this world, which is to influence the future generations. And if you're not up to that stage in life, may the Rebbe Hashem bless you to have that privilege. Now is the time you need to start preparing yourselves to fill the greatest role, perhaps, that a person has in Oilam Hazan. So I want to share with you a personal idea to try to understand what exactly is the influence of a father and a mother. There are many dimensions to this. There are many aspects of this. But why is the, the impact and the influence of a father and a mother so strong? I'm going to share something with you, very personal. You know, I've uh, noticed a phenomenon over the past couple of years of speaking. I could give a shear or a lecture about a certain subject. I could talk for 45 minutes. I could talk for an hour. And it could be about a certain topic. I'm preparing a topic. The topic is about brachas, tefillah, Torah, kashras. And in the course of the shir, I sometimes will mention something in passing. We call it Agavorcha, Mesiach Lefitumai. And very often, somebody will come over to me after the shir, and the comment they made was not about the subject of the shir, was not about the main topic of the shir. They will comment about the remark I made in passing that I didn't even intend to make. Case in point. A few years ago in September, I spoke for a girl's seminary. Not my specialty. I spoke for a girl's seminary in Muncie. I spoke about the subject of tshuva being comparable to tchiyas So when you speak to an audience, you want to develop some kind of rapport with the audience. I always joke around, people say they see me on Torah anytime. I say, I could see you through the screen also. But um, I can't. So I'm sure there's a very eminent audience this evening. But, you know, you like to see who the people in your audience are. You like to establish a connection with them. It makes the, the talk a little bit more meaningful. 
And I'm um, here. It is. I'm speaking to a girls' seminary. What am I? You know, what connection? I'm a rabbi, and it happens to be the day before I had just sent off my daughter to seminary, and I had sent her off to uh, to seminary Sunday night. So I decided to tell these girls, you know, Friday night, the last Friday night, my daughter was home, and I'm making kiddush, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is the last kiddush we're going to have with my daughter before she goes away to Eretz Yisrael. And it was, I was so overcome with emotion, I, I was just yoyre demise. I was not tearing, I was just pouring, outpouring of tears. That's me. I'm an emotional guy. And this is what I tell this girl's seminary, just by way of agavurcham, uh, you know, I'm speaking to a seminary, so I told them I just sent my daughter off to seminary. And I gave a 45 minute shear. After the shear, a girl comes over to me, and she says, a nice shear. I wish somebody would have cried when I went to seminary. Now that's a very telling comment in many ways. But to me, I was wondering, why would that be what this girl chose to tell me about? That I just spoke for 45 minutes about tshuva. It was an in-depth subject. I only mentioned this comment in passing. It was agavorcha. It wasn't even part of the shear. It was unrelated. Was my shear so completely incomprehensible that that's the only thing this person got out of the shear? But that's precisely the point. You see, in a certain respect, that's what makes the most impact. You see, the part of the talk that's organized, that's prepared, that's all it is. It's an organized, prepared talk. But it doesn't have the same impact psychologically. Because it's just a prepared talk. It doesn't have the authenticity, the genuineness of something that a person says, so to speak, in passing Agavorcha, in a moment of full disclosure, because friends, there's something you have to understand. People do not listen to what you say. People are paying attention to who you are. People are not influenced by your words. People are influenced by you. And your prepared talk is just a prepared talk. But what you say in passing, what you say agavorcha, what you say in a moment of full disclosure, that's not what you say, that's you. And that has the biggest impact. This is what the Aushach HaKadosh teaches. The Aushach HaKadosh says, you want to influence your children. You want to tell them, oh, you're thinking, you know, I really need to talk to my children about Darcheretz, about Midais, about not speaking Lashon Hara. So what do you think you're going to do? You're going to pull out a book, okay everyone, let's sit down on the Shabbos table. Um, it's very important to have good Midais and to have Darcheretz and to speak Lashon Hara. I mean not to speak Lashon Hara. You could read Parsha Sheets and you could read Sfarim. If the words <coughs> that you say are just words, they will then travel from your voice box to the eardrum of the listener and bounce off, says the Aushlech HaKadosh. But, hayoim. Allah 
If the words of the Torah are on your heart, then vishinantam levanecha. If you mean it, if you're genuine, if it's dvarim ayoytsim and alev, then there will be nechnasim lalev. Otherwise, don't waste your time. It's often the unrehearsed, unprepared, off-the-cuff remark that sometimes has the greatest impact. You know, by the way, it's interesting, even in halacha, there's a certain force, there's a certain power of a comment that's said in passing. It's called mesiach lefitumai. You know, it's interesting, halachically, only two adult males' testimony is accepted in a Jewish court of law. The testimony of a Gentile, the testimony of the Gentile is... Not accepted. However, if you look in Eben Ezra Simon Yud Zayin, if the Gentile is... By the way, are you able to hear me? Can I get confirmation that you can hear me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? You. Okay. If the Gentile makes his comment, if he just says it in the course of conversation, and... The Shulchan Aruch qualifies this heavily. In other words, he's not coming into court to testify. This is not a subject he brought up on his own. He happened to overhear a conversation about Pliny. And he's saying, oh Pliny, you know, I, I was at his funeral um, the other day, and uh, it's really a pity that he died. And we know that he's not an enemy of Pliny, and he just said it in the course of conversation, we can actually accept the testimony of this Gentile, because it wasn't prepared, it wasn't rehearsed, it was just said, And I believe that probably the greatest element, uh, the greatest element of the influence of a father and a mother is it's the child is exposed to one mesiach lefitumai after another, one off-the-cuff remark, one nonchalant remark, one remark in passing, and the child picks up what the parent really feels about Torah, about Tfila, about Rabbanim, about Avoidas Hashem. It's not the classroom, it's not the lecture, it's the mesiach lefitumai, it's the remarks that are said in passing. And it's incumbent upon a parent to create the memories, to create the images in the child's mind so that when the child is placed in a situation, in a challenging situation, it will be these images and these memories that give the child the fortitude to be able to pass those challenges. We all know Yosef HaTzadik was faced with a very alluring temptation. Yosef HaTzadik is a young, handsome man. He's in Mitzrayim. He's in the most degenerate society. He's far away from his family. And his master's wife, who's very beautiful, she's pressuring him day in and day out. And the Gemara Saita says on Daflamid Vav, she had worn him out. Yosef came in that day ready, willing to do the Avera. The Gemara Saita says, the Gemara describes very graphically how close, close Yosef was to doing the Avera. And in the last moment, he stopped. What was it? Was he afraid of punishment? 
Was it Yerashamayim? Was it Ahavas Hashem? Says the Gemara, Basa diyuknai shalaviv It wasn't fear of God, it wasn't the Gehenom, it wasn't fear of punishment. He saw the saintly image of his father. That's what gave Yosef the strength to overcome. And this is something that every parent has to recognize. That in the 11th hour, the fortitude of the child will not be through the fear of God and it will not be from reward and punishment. It will be the images that he has seared in his soul of his father and his mother. Menashe, remember the wicked king Menashe? He introduced idolatry in every single corner of Eretz Yisrael. And at the end of his life, he was captured. He was put in a pot. He was taken out to be killed. And he said to himself, you know, I remember something. My father taught me. My father taught me the Pasuk. When you're in distress... And all of these things befall you. You're going to return to the Rebbeinah Shalaylam. And Menashe did tshuva. Why did he do tshuva? Because he remembered something his father taught him. What you teach your children, it's in there somewhere. When it will come out, when it will surface, we don't know. Maybe immediately, may, many, maybe many years later. But whatever you teach them, it's gonna, they're going to summon it someday. And our responsibility as parents and grandparents is to create those special memories of dedication and love for mitzvahs. The way a parent says unasan toikef should be etched in the mind of the child. The way a parent says a shecheyanu on a yomtif should be a memorable event. The way a parent makes a bracha should be something memorable to a child. What image will our children have of us? Oh, I remember um, mom. Yeah, she was always on the phone. I remember dad. He was always in front of the big screen. I remember we have to make Kiddush memorable. Havdalah memorable. Berchas Hamazain. These are the moments that will accompany our children for the rest of their lives. About 10 years ago, I was invited to speak in a very wonderful community down south in Memphis, Tennessee. So Memphis is right off the Mississippi River. And you could go there to the Bass Pro Shop, which is the f- tallest freestanding elevator in North America. And from the top, you could see a chunk of the Mississippi River. And if you look closely, you'll see Huckleberry Finn floating on a raft. You need binoculars. And one of the highlights of my trip, I met an, elder, an elderly Yid. At the time, he must have been in his 90s. His name was Rabbi Yeshua Kutner. Now I was shocked by the name because Yeshua Kutna is the name of one of the great Polish Ga'inim before the war. 
who happened to be a Rebbe of my great-great-grandfather, and this Jew in Memphis was named after that great Rav, Rabbi Yeshua Mikutna. And he told me one of the most moving stories I've ever heard. He said he was born in 1920 in New York. His father came to America from Warsaw. His mother came from Galicia. During the Great Depression, his parents were so poor that he would buy big tubs of ice cream. He would keep it frozen with dry ice. And he would carry it on his shoulders. There was a certain area where the trucks would stop by a red light. And he would go from truck to truck to truck selling ice cream. He could make a dollar on a good day. A dollar was like a week's salary. And he brought every penny back to his mother. He didn't spend anything. He said, he told me, he was poor, but his rabbeim in Yeshiva Chai in Berlin were even poorer. He was 10 years old in 1930. And he was hungry. The rabbeim in Yeshiva Chai in Berlin were starving. It was a Great Depression. People who owned malls, supermarkets, were reduced to standing on street corners selling apples, shoelaces, socks, band-aids. A quart of milk cost five cents. A loaf of bread, two cents. Newspaper was a penny. And people didn't have money to buy even the basics. The principal called me and my brother into the office. He said the Rabbeim went on strike because they hadn't been paid in months. Chaim Berlin had no money to pay them because nobody could pay tuition. They told me and my brother we owed $6. If you don't come back in two days with $6, don't come back to the yeshiva. Some boys were sent home. They never came back to yeshiva. They went to public school. And they were lost forever! Because they didn't have money. We came home. What are we going to do? We had no silver candlesticks to pawn. All we had in the house was junk. My father owned one suit. It was a bad suit, but it matched. Mom said, go to the pawn shop. Maybe the man will give you a few bucks for it. My father went to the, went to the pawn shop. He said, we need $6 for the suit. The owner said, come on. This suit is worth, at most, $3.50. My father pled. He begged. The owner gave him six dollars. We went back to the yeshiva. Says this man at age 90-something. This was the most moving moment of my life. Now my brother and I understood what Torah meant to our family. Others were not as fortunate. Had we gone in even a slightly different direction, my family would not be what it is today. My father never had money to buy a suit back. But you know what he got back instead? The Rebbein Shalom gave him grandchildren and great-grandchildren, B'nai Torah, Yerei Shamayim. All of my children and grandchildren are from Erlich Yidin because of that suit. Aaron HaKoyen, he said, had eight begadim, eight garments. The regular Kaihanim had four garments. My family also had Big Day Kahuna. We sold them for six dollars. And that was the best six dollars we ever spent. The choices we make today, 
the decisions we make today reverberate beyond today. They reverberate beyond our lifetime. The decisions that we make will determine who our children will be, who our grandchildren will be. And if we came into a world with a carob tree that was planted for us, if we have been the beneficiaries of the noble decisions of our ancestors, then we owe it to our children and grandchildren to plant that carob tree and make sure we give them the best opportunity to reap the benefits of our ancestors, Mesir Nefesh. Dear friends, the Gemara tells us in Masech the Rosh Hashanah that on the Yom Tif of Rosh Hashanah will be only over a week. Melech Yoyshev HaKiseidin The king will sit on the throne of justice. V'sifrei Chayim V'sifrei Meisim P'suchim Lefanav And the book of the living and the book of the dead will be open. What does it mean the book of the dead will be open? Why is God judging the dead on Rosh Hashanah? They're already finished. They already did whatever they need to do. He's, they're six feet under. He's buried. Why is he being judged? What could he possibly do in the grave? What, he elbowed somebody? He said, move over, there's not enough room down here. Why does he need to be judged? And we're going to say on Rosh Hashanah, We say, Rebunisham, you remember all the deeds from the beginning of time. We say Rebunisham visits and scrutinizes every creation who ever lived. Why is Hashem scrutinizing and judging people who have already passed away? You know, we give tzedakah for the mason because the mason need kapara. The Raman Sim Tafresh Yud says, we light a yardside candle for the Mesim. Why? The Mishnah says, to be Mechaper for the Mesim. The Ramah says, we say Yizgar as an atonement for the Mesim. Why do the dead need atonement? They're not doing anything wrong down there. My understanding, and we have a lot of prominent doctors in the audience, um, most scientists have... Uh, will say definitively that Mesim have a very hard time speaking Lashon Hara. The dead don't really, they're very Zahir and Shmir Salashain. What exactly do Mesim need Kapara for? Rabbi Yeshua Heller, who lived from 1814 to 1880, he was a student of the Nachlas David, he gives a haunting explanation. He says, here you have a good man, he passed away, he lived a life of Yerushamayim. He came early to davening. He davened with Kavana. He was an honest person. He was a tolerant person. He greeted people warmly. He goes up to Shamayim. They gave him a nice spot in Gan Eden. They gave him a corner property in Gan Eden with nice landscaping and a nice vehicle. Next year, Rosh Hashanah comes. They say, Rabbi Yid. He says, well, what? What? What do you want from me? No, don't worry. You're getting a promotion. You're moving. I'm moving? I don't want to move. No, don't worry. You're moving. Where am I moving to? You're moving to back Gan Eden, to a premier area in Gan Eden. Really? I didn't do any mitzvahs this year. I'm, I wasn't alive. So they say the, the angels say it's true. You didn't do any more mitzvahs. But, you know, you lived an honest life. You have two kids. 
they're dealing in business honestly because of your influence. That's new income for you. That's new business for you. And you remember the guy who you sat next to in shul, because you didn't talk by the davening, you influenced him not to talk by the davening. That also is added income for you. And you know, your granddaughter, because you were Zahir Bahalacha, she's careful and sneers because of you. So we're giving you a raise. Really? I don't want to move. Don't worry, it's easy. There are no moving expenses. And then the next Rosh Hashanah comes, and they move him again. They give him another promotion. Where am I going now? You're going to the Hamptons of Gan Eden. What? Why? What did I do? Now you have a few new grandchildren, and they're learning in the yeshiva, and they're doing mitzvahs, and it accrues to your benefit. And they're medaktik b'mitzvahs. So the tzaddik in Gan Eden is going mechayil el chayil. This is what the Gemara means. Tzaddikim ein lahem menucha af The righteous have no rest, not in this world and not in the world to come. On the other hand, here's a guy, he wasn't so medaktik b'mitzvahs. He would come, you know, like halfway through the davening, and he wasn't really that careful about how he spoke, or what he looked at, or how he spent his free time. Oh my, he, pa- he racked up for himself a nice peckle of demerits. After 120 years, he barely has enough income to buy a one-bedroom apartment in the slums in the Harlem of Gan Eden. And not Harlem of 1920, Today, 2023. And he has a lot of next door neighbors who crossed the, the border a few days ago. And he says, why are you putting me here? He said, pal, you're lucky you got this amount. You're lucky you have a roof over your head after your life. Comes the next Rosh Hashanah. He opens up the people and there's this frightening looking angel looking at him. He said, what? What did I do? He said, pal, you're being evicted. Where am I going? You're going to Central Park. You're going to a park bench. What happened? I didn't do any Averois. <laughs> you didn't do Averois. But you know, your kids, you didn't really come to the davening. You spent half the time in the shul, half the time in the bed. Your kids tried out both. They liked the bed much better. So they just stay in the bed. That's because of you. You're out of here. You're going to Central Park. And the next year... They evict him again and they put him on the floor in the subway station. Because all of the deeds that he did in his lifetime that adversely, negatively affected people continue to reverberate and accrue to his demerit. Says of Yeshua Heller, a person's actions reverberate beyond their lifetime. And that is why the Gemara tells us that on every Rosh Hashanah, not only are the Sifrei Chaim opened, but the Sifrei Mesim are opened as well, because it's not enough to judge a person on this Rosh Hashanah. Even after a person goes to the Olam HaMS, they may not be around, but his life and his actions and his deeds continue to reverberate beyond his lifetime. And Rabbi Shua Heller writes something astonishing. He says he saw in a very precious sefer of Rabbi Avi Ad Sar Shalom, who lived in the year 1729. By the way, Rabbi Avi Ad Sar Shalom was one of the few Gedolim that supported the Ramchal when the Ramchal was uh, 
in very challenging times. This Rabbi Aviad wrote a sefer called Amunas Chachamim. And the Rabbi Shuheller says this sefer should be in the library of anyone who wants to have Amuna in the Torah. And he brings an amazing idea from Rabbi Moshe Zakuto explaining a, a pasuk in Yermia. The pasuk says, Gadol God is great of counsel. Virav He's mighty indeed. That in a nutshell, what this means is that for God to judge any individual, He needs to scrutinize, analyze, study, and judge every single human being in the world. Asks Rabbi Aviyad Sar Shalom, why is the Rebun Shalom, why does He need to judge everyone in the world, to judge one individual? Says Rabbi Aviyad, because a person's actions reverberate. Because the way you daven affects the person standing in front of you, behind you, and on your side. And then they go into their shul, and they daven. And that, that the original act continues to reverberate. Do you understand the level of calculation the Rebbeinah Shalom has to make just to judge one individual? You know, Rabbi Aviyad Sarsham wonders, this is really astounding. In Sefer Melachim, the, the, the Navi doesn't talk about the tshuva of Menashe. Remember in the beginning of our talk, we spoke about how Menashe put Avodah everywhere throughout Eretz Yisrael. But on the end of his life, when he was put in a pot, he did tshuva. His tshuva is not recorded in Sefer Melachim. It's only recorded in Divrei Hayamim. Why is that? Says Rabbi Aviyad Sar Shalom, quoted by Rabbi Shua Heller. Because Menashe not only introduced Avodah Zarah, he was Machti Asarabim. He influenced thousands of people to do Avodah Zarah. So even though he tried to do tshuva, his tshuva was not accepted, it was not appreciated, because what's Hashem going to do? He's going to take Menashe out of Gehenim, while all of his students and all the people he influenced are being punished? No! His influence lives on, so even if he repents... His repentance was rejected. Because it was in the time of the first Beis HaMikdash. And the Jewish people were still serving the Avodah Zarah that Menashe influenced. And even though Rabbi Shua Heller says, the Pasuk says, Menashe told them to stop. Menashe said, stop! Friends, it's not enough just to say stop! It wasn't enough what Menashe did. However, Divrei Hayamim came after the destruction. And by the destruction of the first base Hamikdash, all the Jews who served Avodah Zarah died. And the Yetzirah for Avodah Zarah was vanquished. So now Menashe's tshuva could be accepted. But so long as his influence reverberates, he can't really do proper tshuva. Then the Todas Yeshua adds, you see Sefer Malachim was written by Yermia. Yermia lived in the times that Avodah Zarah was rampant. Yermia cannot record the repentance of Menashe. Divrei Hayamim was written by Ezra. Ezra was Mavatel Avodah Zarah. So Ezra could record the tshuva of Menashe. You ready for this? Says the Meshachachma. We, based on this, we can understand the very difficult Gemara and Chagiga. The Gemara tells us 
Rabbi Elazar, when he got to the following Pasuk, he cried. The Pasuk says, Vayoymer Shmuel El Sha'ol, Lama Hergastani Lahaloisaisi. You see, Shaul Hamelech was about to wage war with the Philistines. But he was afraid, he was apprehensive, he needed assurance. Shmuel had passed away, so he couldn't talk to him. He had banished all the necromancers. All the diviners, Hashem didn't answer him with the Urim Batumim. He really didn't know what to do. He felt he had no choice but to raise up Shmuel from the dead. The Gemara says, Shmuel thought they were summoning him for Rosh Hashanah. Shmuel said, why do you rouse me? Am I being judged? Shmuel was frightened, says the Gemara. If Shmuel was afraid of Rosh Hashanah, Shmuel, who is equal to Moshe and Aaron, then imagine how we should feel on Rosh Hashanah. Ask the Meshachachma, what was Shmuel afraid of? I'm sure if Shmuel in his lifetime did anything wrong, I'm sure he repented. I mean, he's equal to Moshe Narayim. Why was Shmuel afraid of being judged? Says the Meshachachma, because the Pasuk says, V'loy halchu banav bedrachav. Shmuel was afraid because his children didn't walk in his ways. And if it, the parent is the cause of the child, the parent is accountable. So even though it's years and years and years after he passed on, he was always afraid they're going to call him out of his children's behavior. A person's actions reverberate well beyond a person's lifetime. They continue to produce fruits. Upeiroi peirois, ad soif kaladoirois. I mentioned my mother's father grew up in the Bronx. At the time, assimilation hit Bolelut, acculturation affected the vast majority of the Jews of that time. But my grandfather had a grandfather. His name was Meshulam Faish. And he wasn't a Rav. He wasn't a uh, sage of note. He was a spirited Yid. And when he would sing Zemiris on Shabbos, Karibayin, the roof would shake. And he would shine his shoes, Lukavit Shabbos. He would sweat when he shined his shoes. And this Hislahavos entered my grandfather's soul and it made him a faithful Jew. And I could imagine every Rosh Hashanah they summon my great-great-grandfather and they say, Rav Yid, you know, we're here, we're here to give you a promotion. He said, promotion? I haven't been around in 60, 70 years. What, for what? I don't, I don't do any mitzvahs here in the Olam HaMS. He said, no, no, not for you. Remember you sang that Karibayin 70 years ago? You sang, you sang it with such tevekos? You have a great-grandson in Cedarhurst, Gladstein. He has kids. They learn in yeshiva. And when they daven on Shabbos, they daven pretty nicely. And that's because of you. So every Rosh Hashanah, he's given a promotion. Because even though he sang that song 70 years ago, the tune reverberates 
decades later. Says Rabbi Yeshua Heller, Alzois Yecharad Levav Ha'adam, for this man's heart should tremble. Besitoy Aliboy, when he thinks, it's called Hamasim Sha'asa Tachas Hashemesh, all the actions that he's done in his lifetime. Asher Yivlu Aisai, your actions will outlive you. We may not be around but our actions will still be reverberating. Says Rabbi Yeshua Heller, V'yata ben Adam, B'yoyzcha b'chayim chayoscha, you men, while you're still alive, ten libcha v'daitcha, l'yoyzroyas hanoilad. Make sure you understand your future. Because if you're not going to do the right thing in this world, Who's going to wake you up from the grave to go to all those people who perhaps you've influenced negatively and say, ignore me, ignore my lifetime, make believe I never existed. Says Rabbi Yeshua Heller, what you do in this lifetime makes a difference. What you do today makes a difference. What you'll do tomorrow makes a difference. Life counts. Life is important. So what will you do for the future of the Jewish people? You could do a lot. Start with your family. Start with the person sitting next to you in shul. Start with your neighbor. Start with your wife. Start with your husband. Start with your children. Because your actions reverberate beyond your lifetime. What you do, how you act, the decisions you make, will make a difference forever and ever. Thank you very much. I want to thank uh, Rabbi Yossi Greenberger for uh, making arrangements for this um, Zoom presentation. If anybody wants to speak personally, uh, I, I invite you. I missed uh, being able to see everyone personally. I invite anyone, if they want to come on to the Zoom, to say hello. I uh, wish you a good yomtif, and I uh, wish everybody a gebench diyar. Everybody should be zoiche to good health. Nachas from your children. Parnasa berevach. Vimali Hashem komashal zlibcham l'tayva. Ksivuchsimataiva. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.